What's up, everybody? Welcome to your weekly episode of the Nuclear Barbarians podcast. It is I, your nuclear barbarian, Emmett Penny, and I am here with my friend Maddie Hilly. Maddie, how's it going? What's up, Emmett? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. I just said my first and last name in a strange cadence, so I feel ready to get into a serious conversation with you about your recent report on how to repower coal plants with nuclear. But before we get there, I know you well. We're close friends. The audience might not know you. So what's your deal? Okay, my deal. So I have been working on saving nuclear plants for the last five years, basically right since I graduated from college. I went to environmental progress to work with Michael Schellenberger and spent 2017 through 2020 traveling around the world, explaining, making the environmental case for nuclear, as Mm -hmm. well as the energy security case for nuclear. And that was great, except there was this nagging feeling that I had where I was going to South Korea, Taiwan, the Netherlands, and everyone would ask me, but why isn't America doing nuclear? (laughs) Yeah, great question, guys. (laughs) And so I kind of, it felt wrong, but had to throw America under the bus a little bit. Be like, Mm -hmm. yeah, we should. Like, don't make our mistake, you know, be better than that. Yeah. And it really took COVID to get me to process that. You know, I was Mm. grounded for the first time in three years, not like metaphorically, but actually couldn't travel (laughs) anywhere. You you and I had a bunch of conversations about the supply chains related to PPE. And it kind of dawned on us like, you know, oh shit, this is not just nuclear. It speaks to a larger problem in America about production, manufacturing, our ability to invest in infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to leave environmental progress to focus just on the U.S. And I launched the campaign for a green nuclear deal. And I wanted it to be everything that I was doing at EP, saving the existing plans, continuing to do state campaigns, and then more. I thought no one's really offering up a vision about what nuclear growth in America could and should look like. And so I want to make some long-term goals. I want to talk about policy principles. How do we get to 50% of our electricity from nuclear by 2050? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I launched in 2020 and soon after Illinois announced the premature closure of two of its nuclear plants. So it took me right back to where I was trying to get away from, which is, you know, being on the D on defense, being on my Mm -hmm. back foot. And that ended up being like this 13 month crazy battle. Mm -hmm. And why this is important is it inspired this new report that I'm here to talk about repowering coal. I was for the first time really engaging with coal communities, unions on the ground. And it really shaped my opinion of coal and sort of the obligation I feel we have to energy communities who are looking at a clean energy transition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, what's really fascinating because I was watching what was going on with Illinois from afar. I was talking to you about it pretty regularly. I even did some phone banking, you know, rare to get me to be able to pick up the phone. That's how much I cared about that. But, uh, you know, because you and I kept having these conversations about deindustrialization and also the, the horror of what it looks like in Zion, Illinois, where a nuclear plant was closed. And then we would look at what would happen to 
towns in West Virginia where like the Walmart would be closed after the coal plant shut down, which is when you know, like that place is never coming back from that. Like it's over, it's curtains. I think that's what's important about this report, which by the way, everybody, you can read it in the show notes. Give it a read. It's really good. It's short too. That's nice. Is that the off-ramp seems to be either learn to code or five of you will get jobs milling around a solar farm. Yeah. I mean, so in Illinois, the, the clean energy legislation that ended up getting passed did acknowledge that this energy transition would seriously impact coal communities. It's the second largest source of electricity in our state after nuclear. Mm. And so it has provisions like grants for communities who are facing the closure of their coal plant, scholarships for the kids of families, but nothing that offers actual long-term jobs, replacements for lost tax revenue from the plants. There's nothing long-term about it. It feels like a bunch of band-aids and then, yeah, go learn to code. Mm. So So what's different about the repowering coal report? Like, what are you offering these communities that other people can't? Yeah, so repowering coal, there's, you know, actually, I won't get into it. Repowering coal <laughs> is basically, there's sort of like repurposing versus repowering. It's like a, a spectrum of how much of the existing site can you actually use. But the mm-hmm. ba- very basic idea is that you can put a small or large, depending on the size of the coal plant, nuclear reactor on the existing coal site and use that infrastructure to basically make a nuclear power plant. Mm -hmm. And this is great because nuclear requires about three times as many jobs as coal plants. So there's a lot of reason to believe that not only will jobs stay within the community, but it will expand the workforce. It keeps that tax revenue in place, nuclear plants, pay, I think an average of like $16 million a year in local and state taxes, you know, it's a way to revitalize these communities that are facing the loss of their main source of, you know, revenue and jobs. Mm -hmm. So it seems like it, we can use some, if not all of the sites, it depends on what type of coal plant it is, like how old, it's grid hookups. There are all sorts of things that go into that. And you touch on some of that in the report. Is it similar with the with the jobs? Like, I'm guessing it's not one-to-one because these are different technologies. But what have you seen so far about the convertibility from a coal workforce to a nuclear workforce? So that's something that we're still studying. Um, and there's a lot of reason to be optimistic about that story. There is a significant amount of overlap between what needs to happen at a fossil fuel power plant and a nuclear power plant. In fact, a lot of the trades that are normally affiliated with fossil fuel plants in Illinois come to work nuclear refueling outages at our nuclear plants. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So there's you know, it's definitely wouldn't be one-to-one. And that's actually one of the big kind of question marks or challenges of repowering is 
what does switching over the workforce look like? Historically, Mm -hmm. retraining efforts in this country have been abysmal. And there's, and it's also a question of timing. Are we going to be able to deploy a nuclear reactor at a coal site by the time it shuts off? Or is there going to be this three or four year gap between the coal closure and electrons on the grid from the nuclear reactor? And if so, what does the workforce do? Mm. You know, do they just sit around? Do they get some sort of stipend for hanging out? Do we pay for them to go to school? Why wouldn't we hire someone like a kid from the Navy for 70K? You know, there there are a bunch of questions and those are questions that are of feasibility and of just political will. What do Mm. we, we have to ask ourselves some serious questions about what do we want and how do we, like, what should this transition look like? Right. But I also think that's one of the virtues of the report is that the idea is giving these communities another option on the table. It's not saying you must replace this with a nuclear plant, but you've got a variety of options. Like maybe the community can be saved by its river rafting tourism economy. And I'm not knocking that. Like that might be true. I don't know. That's for them to decide. And so rather than saying, we're just going to pull all these jobs away from you and then figure it out yourselves, it's saying, no, we've got some options here. Totally. And that's something that, you know, is a big part of the report is this option has been left off the table for a lot of coal communities across the country. For example, in Illinois, we have a nuclear moratorium, which means that there is no new construction of a Mm -hmm. nuclear plant allowed, even if the utility is interested, even if developers are interested, unless it gets actually legislated through the General Assembly. And we know Mm -hmm. how that it's basically a total ban. Mm -hmm. And so part of this is giving is repealing those obstacles to nuclear so that coal communities can have those conversations that nuclear developers can come in and give them this option and talk about what that workforce retraining would look like, what the options would be how many people they need on site, what construction Mm -hmm. jobs this would bring to the area. So right now it's really hard to even have that conversation. And I think there are still 11 states with similar bans to Illinois. Yeah, so that seems like just a necessary part of getting the way, making the way for repowering. Like what are some other things that put us on the road to having this option? So another really good thing that states and communities can do is make sure that nuclear energy is included in the state's clean energy standards so that- Man, you'd think you wouldn't have to, but you really do. Right. I mean, it sounds so (laughs) obvious. It's like, let's count zero carbon energy as clean energy, Mm -hmm. but that is not the case in many states. And it's a signal to developers that this is a hostile place for nuclear we shouldn't go there. And, you know, conversely, if you include nuclear in the clean energy standard, it's, hey, we're interested, we're open, come Mm -hmm. look at us. It puts communities in a position to be courted by potential developers who want to make use of brownfield energy sites. Mm -hmm. So that's something very obvious as well. Yeah, the brownfield part seems really important for those who don't know or sort of like new to the energy space at all. First of all, welcome. Welcome to the party, pal, to quote Bruce Willis. But a brownfield site is a site that's already being used for industrial purposes. So that's a 
former coal plant site or something like that. And the advantages, as I understand them, and Maddie, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that because it's already been used in this way, the hurdles for getting it approved for further industrial use are far lower than taking a brand new spot, which would be a greenfield site. Yep, that's that's the thought behind this, where you know that this plot of land is already designated for power production. That also means that it's got transmission there. It's got to hook up to the grid. There's there are still open questions on how much of the infrastructure you can use. Like, would you build it in the coal or near the turbine right, building? Right, right. Or are you just like, yeah, in the coal yard and it's like close enough and that's cool. And we don't have to do a total site feasibility study. So that that's part, that's part of the challenge, I would say, is figuring out how beneficial is building on an existing site. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, and it's also gonna depend on what type of nuclear plant too, right? Like I right. think it's, what is it, the BWXR has mm-hmm. similar grid hookups, but that's a newer model. So that will run into its own problems, both regulatory approval and just doing first of a kind builds take a long time. These are complex engineering problems. So as you said it earlier, a lot of this has to do with like timing and political will in order to pull this off. Absolutely. I mean, so there are a lot of big questions on whether the new reactors that we're seeing coming down the pike will even be ready by the time a lot of these coal plants are shutting off. So for example, TerraPower is a a small molten salt reactor that's being demonstrated at an existing coal plant in Wyoming. Mm -hmm. And I think the estimates right now are that they want to bring it online in 2027 2028, which would be amazing. But, you know, as you and I were skeptical by nature and rightfully so in the nuclear industry, it's going to have huge delays. That's just the name of the game. Mm -hmm. And part of that, you know, the fuel that that reactor and a lot of these small advanced reactors will require requires a special type of uranium that there's one commercial facility in the world for, and it's in Russia. Right. And I think Russia is actually looking at sanctions now for uranium. Mm -hmm. So, and, you know, so even putting aside that special type of uranium, it wouldn't be a huge deal if we couldn't get our uranium from Russia but if they enforce our allies not to do business with us, that's suddenly more like closer to half of where the U.S. Wow. gets its uranium from. So there wow. are a lot of bit like hurdles. It's not just plug and play and magic fairy tale for all of the coal workers. We're, <laughs> you know, nuclear is complicated. The supply chains have been deteriorating for decades. Yeah, they're desiccated like everything else, right? Exactly. So that's why I think this report, we wrote it for policymakers and local leaders, and we're circulating it now because there's a lot that, you know, it's going to take time. And so the conversation needs to be happening now, Mm -hmm. especially in Illinois, where most, you know, we have nearly seven gigawatts of coal legislated to go offline by 2030, the next eight years. So... Then well, that brings me to my next question, which is, I mean, I know this is only, this has come out very recently, but have you gotten any responses from the audience that you hoped would read it? And if so, what's the nature of them? So, yes, it's been actually really exciting. There's, there's interest in Minnesota where 
for example, there's the Sherco coal plant, huge coal plant, I think close to like 2,400 megawatts. And Excel was going to replace it, do a same sort of repowering situation, but with a gas plant and then canceled that project. And so now they're looking at an option of a big ass solar farm kind of, you know, around their community or they don't know. Mm-hmm. And so this was well-received by leaders in that community. And now Minnesota is contemplating a special hearing in the legislature just for the idea of nuclear repowering, which is awesome. That's great. Yeah, They also are one of the states with a nuclear moratorium. And I hear that that bill might be, a repeal bill may also be introduced soon. So that's sort of the first step. We're seeing in Illinois, we have our own repeal bill on the Mm -hmm. table right now. We've been circulating this not only to the legislators and the people who will be involved in the hearing, but I've been talking with IBEW about, you know, what this would mean Mm -hmm. for their union. I I do think there's a huge opportunity for labor to get behind something like this. I mean, workers have been rightfully skeptical about any clean energy legislation for the exact reason that we've talked about. They, they know the future looking is looking dim and they can learn to code. So this gives them that other off ramp. So we're building support in communities we're building support among workers and then among state policymakers who, you know, it's certainly not like in the White House, but a lot of this gets done at the state level. Right. So, I mean, I guess when I look at this, I'm really shocked by the amount of repeals of moratoria even being contemplated. So there's Illinois, there's Minnesota, Indiana. I think is also looking um, past. Past. Okay. So they passed theirs. West Virginia recently got rid of theirs. And the people who supervise the Connecticut grid are now contemplating getting rid of Connecticut. I mean, this is one of the wealthiest states in the country. Yeah. So that'd be a huge deal. And for people who don't know, a lot of that has to do, first of all, former guest Meredith Angwin, I think has been influential over there. But I also think that perhaps most instructive is the way that New England has been left vulnerable to the international liquefied natural gas market, which means that it has to buy from the same pool of LNG that Europe does. And we all know how that's going. (laughs) Suddenly those strike prices for nuclear seem really, really attractive when the price for LNG goes up so much. Absolutely. I mean, that's why coal has had, you know, a bit of a banner year, banner year. Because of these high natural gas prices. Now, unfortunately, like that's not going to last. I think some people have maybe a little bit of false optimism about it. You know, we've retired 30% of our coal fleet since 2010. We have 28% of the existing fleets already scheduled for closure by 2035, I think. And just, I think you did this uh, uh, napkin math, but you were like, that's like 30 something Hoover dams worth of coal. Oh, in just Illinois. Yeah, in just Illinois. Wow. Crazy. And so, and you know, 
coal wasn't built like nuclear, just doesn't have the same longevity. So mm-hmm. the average American coal plant is 45 years old. Takes wow. a lot to repair and to fix. And who's going to make those investments when the po- like the political will to decarbonize isn't going anywhere? No, that's not. That's just going to be a permanent fixture of right. the landscape now. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, some of us might wonder about the upsides and downsides of that becoming sort of how we think about energy in total, because there are a lot of different ways to value energy. But that aside, it's just how it is. Yeah. You know, but that also gives us an inroad for making a new argument for nuclear as the big base load that can actually replace some of these things. Absolutely. I mean, it's just such a win for workers, for the communities who are already, you know, whose purpose is already energy production. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then for reliability and really hardening America's security or like energy security. Totally. It totally. should be an obvious bipartisan issue. And in, in, in West Virginia, it was. Mm-hmm. And it might be, you know, yeah. I mean, I think that's the hope here. Like I don't necessarily want nuclear to fall victim to pure partisanship. You know, I would like it to be a consensus issue. So mm-hmm. I think that's great. And I think this strategy for having to do, for doing it has a lot of legs. Yeah. I mean, in Illinois, it's being raised by Democrats and West Virginia was Republicans. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that, you know, even taking these steps forward doesn't mean we don't have a big lift ahead of us. Mm -hmm. Namely, the NRC is something that I worry about. Just getting anything licensed has been you know, has seemed impossible. And now for the first time ever, if I'm correct, we're seeing the, the regular, a regulatory body reverse a decision made by the previous government Mm -hmm. without any new information being introduced, which is a really bad precedent to send or to set. So for people who might not be aware, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is Commissioner Committee Commission, I think. They have overly difficult safety regs to clear, a very difficult process to get through. So the cards are stacked against nuclear in that way. Right now, it only has three commissioners. It's supposed to have five, and it's split along partisan lines. So there are two Democrats, one Republican. Maddie was was talking about what happened to Turkey Point and another power plant. You can go back to my episode with Robert Bryce to get a deep dive on this, but they essentially said, oh yeah, we were going to extend the life of this plant. Actually, we're not. And it was the Democrats who voted for that and the Republican who, who said, this is an arbitrary decision that is going to make it very, very hard to do business in the nuclear space if they can't rely on the regulatory bodies to keep to their word, which I think is true. And I think that's a problem yeah. anyone's going to have in the nuclear sphere, whether you're doing advanced, which is uh, ultra safe on paper mm-hmm. and, or whether you're doing already existing, which is ultra safe in real life, it's going to be a problem for you. Yeah. So there are a lot of challenges ahead, but also a lot of opportunities. This could mm-hmm. be a great story about how we transition from fossil fuels to clean energy in a way that really prioritizes workers, communities, and existing infrastructure using what we already have. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. And I 
I think this is the beginning of a potentially radiant future. So on that note, Maddie, thank you so much for joining me today. This was great. Where can people find you? So people can find my work at gndcampaign.org. I'm also on Twitter at Maddie, M-A-D-I-H-I-L-L-Y. And yeah, LinkedIn. All of it. Okay. Instagram, all of the things. Yeah. You can go find it there. Again, that will also be in the show notes. Check out the Cole Report. Share it with other people who are passionate about this issue. Get talking about it. That's the most important thing we can do because this is the beginning of a long process of us all coming together and figuring out what a nuclear future is going to look like. And please, if you're interested and want to, you know, get involved in your state, please get in touch. I've already had people reach out who are like, how do we get this to legislators in Montana? And can I circulate this? Yes. I want to be helpful. We want to put resources behind that. We want to get the word out. So please be in touch. Absolutely guys. So stay strong, stay sharp, stay radiant. And we'll see you next time.